open up our teaching today telling you about a, a woman named Anna Montez. Anna Montez. And she was, from 1985 through 2001, she was a star in the Defense Intelligence Agency in Washington, D.C. And what that means is that she was an incredible researcher, an incredible analyst, and an incredible intelligence officer, and her specialty was Cuba and gaining intelligence about Cuba, uh, specifically during the Cold War and just afterwards. And Anna Montez, she got promotions, she got accolades, she received special recognition once from the director of the CIA himself, and she was known for her work as the Queen of Cuba. It was not just her, though, however. In fact, uh, her brother and her sister worked for the CIA, and her boyfriend worked for the Pentagon. There was just one problem with Anna Montez. Anna Montez was from the beginning of her career, a spy for Cuba. The 10 days after 9-11, she was arrested and it was discovered that in her purse, there were codes. In her apartment, there was a shortwave radio that during her time uh, in the DIA, she had made multiple trips to Cuba and had even, it is believed, received a special award personally from Fidel Castro. And so here's the point that I wanna make with this story, that. Every single person in Anna Montez's life, her co-workers, her brother and sister who were also in intelligence, her boyfriend who was in intelligence, all of them looked at her and they saw one thing, but they were blind to the ultimate truth. Here's how this applies to us. I believe that in here, God has wired in each one of us the desire to know him, the, the desire to to walk with him. And even if you're in here today and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, God has given you and wired in you this desire to know and to walk with God. And I believe that that's why you're here. I believe that there's no one in here by accident. And so as you're walking in here and as you're in here, each of us have this reality in our lives, but it is very possible for each one of us to miss it. It's possible for us to go through life and see life as we perceive it and be blind to the reality of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. And so as we study through this text today, there's two things that I want us to look at. I want us to look first off at four causes of spiritual blindness. And then I want us to look at three clues that we are truly seeing Jesus. And by the way, I'm gonna spend most of my time on the four causes of spiritual blindness. And so when we get to the three clues that we are truly seeing Jesus, you can think to yourself, thank goodness he is almost done. I give you permission to think that. But the goal is this, that if there's things in our lives that, that are keeping us from truly seeing God's love, that those things would fall off of our eyes. And that we would open up our hearts to truly following Jesus. So with that being said, let's dive in. John chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 1. Are you in John 9? Awesome. I love to hear it. John 9, verse 1, and it says this, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. A little bit of context for us. In John chapter 8, Jesus was in what we will call a healthy debate with the religious leaders at the times, the Pharisees. 
And this healthy debate got into a very intense place because at the end of John chapter 8, the Pharisees picked up rocks to throw at him to kill him. So here's how you know the conversation is not going well. Like some people, you're like, you know what? I'm not the best at reading social cues. Sometimes I miss things. If someone has a rock in their hand and they're ready to throw it at you, that's the end of the conversation. And and what we see is that Jesus escaped and he left. And here he is in verse 1. And as he went along, he sees this man blind from birth. We'll learn a little later in the story that probably many scholars believe this is right outside the temple at the temple gates. Verse 2, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so here's what we see is that the disciples, they had a common misconception about life that was common at their time and it's common in our time. And so you can write this down. The first cause of spiritual blindness is this, the blindness of circumstances. The blindness of circumstances. The disciples believed that the reason this man had the circumstances that he was in is that he had messed up or someone in his life had messed up. There's a belief throughout our church world today that is called the prosperity gospel. It's a false belief. And this is what the prosperity gospel says. It says if you're a good boy, if you're a good girl, if you do the right things, if you obey, if you give enough money, God will bless your life. Therefore, if you're suffering, if you're going through hardship, the reason is because you're not doing good enough. You need to be doing better before God. Now, let's, let's look at the truth of the Bible. The Bible does teach us wise principles for life. And in many cases, when we apply those wise principles to our lives, it will bring flourishing to our marriages, to our relationships, to our walks with God, to our businesses, to our finances in many cases. But what the Bible also teaches is that every single follower of Jesus will experience suffering in their lives. There is a suffering that comes from just being in a world that is cursed. There's a suffering that comes as we wage war against our flesh and seek holiness. There's a persecution that happens just by us taking a stand for Jesus. And the reason we have to guard against the blindness of circumstances is that here's what can happen. Some of us in here are doing really good right now. The bank account looks great, health looks great, just got a promotion at work, everything seems to be going your way. And when that happens, the thing that we can tend to think is, the reason I'm doing awesome is because I'm awesome. And the reason that you are not doing awesome, when I see someone who's suffering, when I see someone who's going through a hardship, and sometimes we don't say it out loud, but we think it, they're probably doing something wrong and they're not doing as good as me. That's why they're struggling. And that is the blindness of circumstances. On the flip side, there are people in our church who are struggling. And as I look around our church over the weekend, I see people who are going through cancer. 
I see people who are dealing with a disability. I see people who are making, having to make difficult decisions with parents. I see people who w- wish that they were, were married and, and they're single. I see people who are going through all sorts of different types of trials and discouragements and suffering. And if we're not careful, what we can think of is uh, the reason that I'm struggling is because I'm messing up or because God's mad at me. And that's just not always the case. Look at what Romans chapter 8 says, the Apostle Paul. He says this, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now look at that verse. No one is praying that verse over their lives. No one woke up today and they were like, I I could use a little bit more famine, God. Like, Like just send more hardship my way, Lord. I'm ready for it, right? None of us are hoping for that, but what the Apostle Paul says is that is a reality, but those realities don't separate us from Jesus' love. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Paul is saying is that both suffering and God's love are both realities in their lives. They're not mutually exclusive. You can write this down. I think that this is so important that in this world, Jesus' love does not erase our suffering and suffering does not erase Jesus' love. As followers of Jesus, we're going to experience both, and it's so essential that we don't allow the blindness of our circumstances to say, man, because I'm going through something hard, God must not love me. Now let's keep going. Look with me at verse 6. It says, after saying this, Jesus spit on the ground. If you haven't been in church in a while, maybe you haven't read this story, that probably verse caught you off guard. Like, what, what? Jesus, the Son of God, spit on the ground, and he made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. Isn't that a beautiful and also very weird story? So last night I was in church, uh, and it was right before the service started, and I was looking over my notes, and a family walks into church, And bear with me for a second. The story is about spit, so just bear that in mind. Um, A a couple walks into church, and they have their kids with them, and one of the kids starts talking about a loogie. Do you guys know what a loogie is? A loogie is when you spit. It's the thing that's on the ground after you spit. And they were saying that. I know that's kind of gross. And the parents were like, hey, guys, we're in church. Stop talking about loogies. And I thought to myself, You guys are not going to believe what church is about tonight. (laughs) For maybe the one time this year, it's actually appropriate to bring up the subject. And and so put yourself in the position of this blind man. This man, Jesus did not walk up to him and say, hey, by the way, I'm the son of God. I'm here to heal you, but this is going to be a little bit interesting. All he heard was some people debating about his disability, and then the next thing he heard was someone 
preparing to spit and then spitting. And then the next thing he experienced was someone rubbing mud on his eyes. But then it gets worse. That same person who rubbed mud on his eyes after that said, hey, you have mud on your eyes. You should go wash that off. Like that's what happened to him. But something in his heart, something in his mind, there was faith. And so he obeyed the commands of Jesus even when he didn't understand it. And when he got to that pool, he washed his eyes. And for the first time in his life, he could see colors and shapes and light. And Jesus had restored his sight. Now, this is going to cause quite a controversy. So let's look, verse 13. Actually, excuse me, verse 8. Look with me at verse 8. It says, The man's neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Is this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. But others said, No, he only looks like him. But the man himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open? They asked. Verse 11, he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Verse 12, where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. So here we see the man's neighbors, the man's friends, the man's, uh, the, the people who lived in his city who passed by and saw him. They knew who he was, and now they had seen a miracle in his life. But I think it's interesting that these people weren't necessarily helping him when he was blind. They were just interested now that the cure had happened. And so actually, here's what we find, the second type of blindness, and it is the blindness of curiosity. The blindness of curiosity, and we could even add the blindness of passive curiosity. Here's what I mean by that. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we discover that there is this theme that everywhere Jesus went, a crowd followed. And what we discover is the crowds love to see miracles. Crowds love to hear exciting preaching. Crowds are looking for a spectacle. They're looking to be entertained. But Jesus himself said to the crowd in John 6, you're not here to follow me. You're here because I gave you fish and chips. Later on in the story, we see that Jesus, he's riding down into Jerusalem on a donkey, and a crowd cries out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're celebrating him. But then that same crowd, five days later, cries, crucify him. You see, crowds are curious, but passive curiosity doesn't always lead to faith. And it's possible that there are people in this church, there's people in our lives that are what the Apostle Paul describes in, in 2 Timothy. He says this about a certain group of people that they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They're passively curious. Now, I want to say a couple things about this. There are people in here right now and throughout our services that don't know Jesus. And I pray that Calvary Chapel is always a church where people who don't know Jesus want to attend. Do you believe that? Do you pray that? We want to be a church that, that calls Christians to follow him, but we also want to be a church that welcomes people who don't know Jesus and says, man, you're welcome here to find out about the Lord. And so I pray that that's the case. And if you don't know Jesus, I pray that today you will meet Jesus. But we as Christians can sometimes let the crowd 
intimidate us. I remember even as a, a young man, 18, 19 years old, I began to, to develop this desire in my heart that I just wanted to be celebrated. I just wanted to be loved. I just wanted everyone to think I was awesome. And so in high school and, and in college, that became my obsession in every room that I walked into and in every conversation. What I was thinking about was I just want people to think that I'm amazing. And the, the reality of that is that people pleasing can really lead us down a direction where we don't truly take our faith seriously, where we don't take being bold for Jesus seriously because we are afraid of the crowd. And so my challenge to us as Christians is let's not let the blindness of passive curiosity keep us from being passionate about our faith, keep us from being passionate about being bold for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's keep going. Verse 13, the crowd, the neighbors, brought to the Pharisees, the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees had created a man-made law that said, that you could not heal anyone on the Sabbath. It wasn't from God, but it was from man, and so they said he can't be from God. Uh, Verse 16, but others said, how could a sinner perform such signs? So there were divided. There's division about Jesus. Verse 17, then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. So we see this controversy stirring about Jesus. And also one other thing I want you to notice, this man is actually growing in his understanding of Jesus. When the man first encountered Jesus, he couldn't see him. And then later in the story, he knows his name. And now, maybe he doesn't know the full picture, but he says he's a prophet. So we see throughout this story, the man, he's growing in his understanding of who Jesus is. Let's keep reading. Look with me at verse 18. So the Pharisees still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked him. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, I don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now listen, the parents, what they're doing here is they are answering the question of the religious leaders. But the religious leaders are bullying them and intimidating them. And so what they're doing is they're answering the question, but they're also creating some distance between themselves and their son and between themselves and Jesus. We're about to find out why. Look at verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So the Pharisees had said, if you say Jesus is Savior, if you say Jesus is King, we're kicking you out. That was a big deal. Now in our context, in Melbourne in 2022, if you were to uh, decide you wanted to go to a different church, or if anyone in our community decided, I don't like my church, I'm going to a different church, you would have 
many other churches to go to. And most churches wouldn't even ask, you know, what happened at the last church. And so it's a relatively easy transition. At that time in Jerusalem, if you got kicked out of your synagogue, that was absolutely devastating to you. It was devastating to you socially because that was your community. It was devastating to you spiritually. There wasn't a way for you to connect with God. It was even devastating for your business and your livelihood because you were cut off from everyone that you knew. So this was a big deal and a big threat that these Pharisees were making, but it leads us to our third form of blindness, and that is the blindness of comfort. The blindness of comfort. You see, these parents, they distance themselves from their son and distance themselves from Jesus for the sake of their own comfort and convenience. Now, I want to take a moment on this Father's Day weekend and give a loving challenge to the fathers that are in our house today. That is the temptation that we are facing as well. It is easier to pursue our own comfort or even to pursue our family's comfort than it is to lead our family towards Jesus. It is hard and it is challenging to lead your family towards the Lord. I even think about something that I didn't realize before I had kids. It's hard to get your kids to church every morning. All the parents said, like, let me just fill you in. People say, Miracles don't happen today. Why don't we see God do miracles today? If you see someone walking into church with their kids, you're witnessing a miracle. Like the amount of things that had to go right for that to happen is an actual literal miracle. You could say you saw many miracles happen today. Like it's amazing that, like, like I believe that parents should come to church and at the same time, I'm like, I can't believe you're here. Like I can't believe I'm here. Like, I can't believe I made it today. That's how I feel about getting kids to church. And so it's a challenging thing. It's a challenging thing to say, you know what? As a family, we are going to take a stand and go in a different direction than everything in culture is pushing us towards. But as fathers, you are called to be the spiritual leaders of your homes. Now, this doesn't mean that that moms, wives, you don't have anything to do with it. It doesn't mean that dads always say everything's spiritual. It doesn't even mean, dads, that you have to know more about the Bible than your wife. I know amazing spiritual leaders of their homes who their wives have incredible Bible knowledge. What a spiritual leader is is someone who says, I'm going to set the tone. I'm going to set the pace. We're moving towards Jesus. And we're going to, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, we still have fun we, we still have a great time. We do our best not to create a legalistic atmosphere. We want to have a fun atmosphere. We want to have an atmosphere that celebrates Jesus and celebrates life. But as the spiritual leaders, dads, you are called to be the spiritual leader. Do not give in to the idol and the blindness of comfort. Let's keep going. Look with me at verse 24. A second time, the Pharisees summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. The man replied, and I love this. The Pharisees, they're challenging him. They're trying to get him to admit that Jesus is a fake, a fraud. And here's what this man says. He replies, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But there's one thing I do know. I once was blind, and now I see. 
And listen, we want you to come to church to grow in your knowledge of God, to grow in your knowledge of Jesus. And so I hope that after you've been around the things of God for a while, you know more than to say, I don't know very much about Jesus. We want to teach you about Jesus. But all you need to start is to say this, I don't know much, but here's what I do know. I once was blind, and now I see. I once was dead, and now I'm alive. Jesus changed my life. That's all you need to start. They ask him again, verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, verse 27, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? He got in trouble there. Verse 28, they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. I think this man's a little sassy. I like it. Look at verse 30. He says, that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who will do, does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at your birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So an intense, intense moment, and he ends up being kicked out of the synagogue. Now I want us to think about these religious leaders, these Pharisees, and this leads us to our fourth and final blindness, the blindness of control. The blindness of control. I want you to look back at verse 22 for a second. And we find this interesting description of Jesus. I actually hadn't even seen this, and then I was reading it during the first service, and it hit me. It says, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Listen to what the Jewish leaders, listen to their mindset. It says, the Jewish leaders had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus as Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. So control is saying, I have already decided in my mind the limits of what God can do. I've already decided where God can work and where he can't work. I've already decided who he can work through and who he can't work through. I've already decided this is what it's going to look like and this is not what it's going to look like. Now, we know that we all stand on God's word, right? So we know that we never compromise truth. And everything that we do is trying to mold our lives more to God's word. So don't hear me say God is going to go outside of, of his word or God's going to do something that is against scripture because that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that God does work in ways that are beyond what we can think. And sometimes, especially if we've been around for a while, what can tend to happen is that we can tend to put God in a box and we can tend to say, if it doesn't look like how I expect it to look, it can't be of God. I want to tell you a story of how Calvary Chapel started, not this one, but the movement of Calvary Chapel. A man named Chuck Smith started this thing in California just simply teaching the scripture in a simple manner. And it's so fascinating because this man, if you look at him, if you listen to him, he wasn't the coolest person in the world. 
Like, like he was a, a, a very normal person, but God really started moving in his lives, especially towards the hippie generation that was happening in the 60s and 70s and 80s. We got any former hippies in the house today? Anybody? Yeah, come on now. Loud and proud. And one of the things at the time that was a hallmark of them was that they, they didn't wear shoes. And so because the church was blowing up, they, they had moved into this new building and they got a brand new carpet. And so the leaders of the church, the elders, they put up a sign at the door and they said, shoes required. And the reason was, we don't want to get our brand new carpet dirty. But Chuck Smith, he saw that sign and something hit him. He said, if I keep this sign up, all these people that I'm trying to reach are going to leave because they're not going to want to come in. And so what he said is we're tearing the sign down because I'd rather have a dirty carpet that's filled with people who need to meet Jesus than a clean carpet and empty seats in a generation that is far from God. That's what he said. And that must be our heart as well. We're never going to compromise on Scripture. We're never going to walk away from the principles that God lays out. But sometimes in order to reach people, we we must be open to saying, look, it doesn't have to look exactly how I want it to look. My heart is for everyone in my generation to meet and encounter Jesus. And so let's not have a spirit of control. Let's have a spirit to say, I don't want to criticize. I want to invest and I want to say, God, how can we see this generation reached for Jesus? Amen? Amen. Let's keep going. Let's wrap this thing up. Verse 35, look with me. Jesus heard that he had been thrown out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, the Son of Man was a title from Daniel that was another way of saying Messiah, Savior, King. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and so that those who see will become blind. So here, as we think about this passage, and I was reflecting on this passage, and I thought about every group of people that was in this passage. I thought about the neighbors, his parents, the spiritual leaders. And God had asked each person in that group, God had called them to love this man. But what I realized was that no one of that group truly loved that man. They didn't love him because of spiritual blindness. And so I want you to write this down. That spiritual blindness keeps us from seeing Jesus and serving others. And when there's blindness in our eyes, spiritual blindness, it prevents us from following after the things of God. And then I started thinking about Jesus. Jesus was the only person in this text that actually loved this man. But even though Jesus loved him, his life was still really hard. Like, think about it. He did have his eyes open. That's a beautiful thing. But at the same time, the way that he got healed, that was extremely challenging. He, in this story, he gets basically abandoned by his parents. He gets mocked. He gets put in this intense investigation. 
And eventually he gets thrown out of the synagogue. And so I was, I was reflecting about this. I thought about the fact that Jesus, when he loves us, sometimes it looks different than we're going to expect. And sometimes it doesn't feel pleasant, but we're still experiencing the love of Jesus. And so we need to have the eyes of Christ to be able to see the love of Christ. So as we close, three clues that we're truly seeing Jesus and truly understanding what Jesus is doing. The first one is this, that we're truly seeing Jesus when we start to look for how Jesus is working, even in our pain. Now, I don't say this lightly, but because I, I know that there are some people going through some tremendous pain here. But here's what Jesus said. Jesus said that the reason that this man was born blind was so that the works of God would be displayed through him. Now, that's a heavy thing to say that his entire life was in poverty and suffering, and part of the reason for that was that God's glory would be displayed and God would be on the move. Now, I don't believe that God causes every ounce of pain in your life. There is a curse on the world. People have free will, and so people hurt us. But God is sovereign. And so whatever we experience has gone through the hands of God. And we have to remember sometimes that God is incredibly loving, that God is incredibly good, 100% good. And even if you look behind me and think about this giant screen, and then if you look at one little speck, th this giant screen doesn't even begin to represent the vast knowledge of God. And, and that tiny speck doesn't begin to represent how limited our perception and our knowledge is. And so we must trust, even in the hardships and even in the pain, that God is at work in our suffering and in our pain. And it is okay to ask why. It's okay to question. But may I encourage you that while we're asking God why, may we also be looking, God, how are you working? Because here's the promise of John 9. That whatever we're walking through, whatever we're going through right now, I can 100% guarantee that God is working. God is at work. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he is at work and he's working all things for the good. So we see Jesus even in our pain. The second clue that we're seeing Jesus is this, that we're willing to obey Jesus even when it seems crazy. I want to explain a little bit more about this miracle that happened. Most scholars believe that this man was at the temple gates. The reason is because that that is often where beggars were. Jesus was exiting there. And also even in uh, Acts 4, I believe, we see another beggar like this at the temple gates. Now, the distance between the temple gates and the pool of Siloam was somewhat significant. I have a map here of Jerusalem over there, the top dot, those are the southern steps of the temple, and then we can actually track the road, and we know where the pool of Siloam is. Now, that distance is around 0.4 miles, just under half a mile. Now, we have another slide, a beautiful painting of what 
the Pool of Siloam actually would look like. You can go and visit it. We know what it looks like. And he had to go down these steps. And actually, the distance he had to travel was about 100 yards downhill during this point, four miles. So Jesus could have made it a little bit easier on him, just being honest. There were times where Jesus just touched someone's eyes and healed him. But Jesus called him to do something fairly difficult on his path towards the miracle. And here's why I say this. That for some of us in this room, we know that the next step in our walk with God is going to require us to take a step of faith. We know we're going to have to step out and get in community or, or start opening up the word or start studying scripture or joining a serve team. Maybe there's even some, some people in here and it's like, man, my marriage is struggling right now. I know uh, we, we need to get some help. We need some marriage counseling. But it's hard. It's like, man, if, if I call to try and get some marriage counseling, it's going to be embarrassing. It, it is going to be embarrassing. That's, that's embarrassing to say I need help. It hurts our pride. But, but it's also going to be embarrassing if it falls apart. Or are we willing to do the hard thing? There's people in here that are saying, man, I'm, I'm, Brian, I'm, I'm struggling with, with porn. It's an addiction in my life. It's, it's holding on to me. But it's going to be awkward to sign up for a freedom class. It probably will be awkward. It's going to be difficult. It's going to take a lowering of your pride. But, but that's way easier than living the rest of your life chained to an addiction. And so are we willing to say, man, whatever it is that Jesus is calling me to do, I know Jesus is calling for his glory and for my good. So I want to take the step towards freedom, even if in my mind it doesn't make sense right now. I'm willing to say, if Jesus, if you call me to do it, I don't have to figure it out, I'll just be obedient to it. And that's what we're called to do. And then the third and final thing, and this is how we'll close, we know we're seeing Jesus when we grow in our knowledge of Jesus. And I love how this story starts with this man having a mystery stranger put mud on his eyes. Then he knows his name. Then he knows he's a prophet. He's not sure if he's a sinner. And finally, he says, you are the Messiah, and he worships him. And that's what happens in our life as well. That we are called by God to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. And I believe that there are some people in here that you're on the journey towards growing towards Jesus. Well, the journey ends and the journey begins with us worshiping Jesus as King and Lord. And so I pray that that happens for some people even in here today. Let's pray. God, I thank you that today you are opening up the eyes of all of us. I believe that each one of us has spiritual blindness that's keeping us from truly seeing you. And I pray that today you would open up our eyes. I pray that for all of us who are suffering with some form of spiritual blindness, the scales would fall off. But God, I especially pray for those who walked in and they didn't have a good understanding of Jesus. And now today they've seen him for the first time. They've seen him as savior and king. And that happens, by the way, as you understand that Jesus hung on the cross and died and rose again to give you new life. That he invites you into a relationship with God the Father. And he wants to save you and set you free and give you new life. And so I just want to say if that's you, either in this room or 
watching online and, and Jesus is moving in your heart, Jesus is bringing you towards him right now, I just want to invite you to pray a simple prayer. Just pray a prayer after me, something like this. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for rising again. I am a sinner. I need a savior. Help me to follow you. Bring people around me that will help me. God, thank you that on this Father's Day, you have become my heavenly father. May I follow you as your son or as your daughter. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.